One of the greatest obstacles to crafting health and wellness is identifying and controlling inflammation. It's at the core of all complex and chronic diseases, and it's the driving mechanism that underlies the most common symptoms that people like you struggle to overcome. Join us as we explore cutting-edge science and research to give you the information and tools you need to create the quality of life you want and deserve. And now, here is the host of Inflammation Nation, Dr. Stephen Noseworthy. So we're talking about um, finding your personal food code or discovering your ideal diet. And uh, in the introductory episode, I suggested we look at diet as uh, like a combination lock where you have to have certain digits in certain places in order for the lock to open. And if you're missing a digit or if you have digits out of place or the wrong digit in the right place, then it's not going to work for you the way that you want. And this whole point, this whole discussion, in fact, what I want to want to what I want to talk about today is like why does diet matter at all? Um, mentioned in the last episode that I had a very good friend in college, still were very good friends, who just didn't enjoy food at all. And and so it really wasn't all that enjoyable to go out under <clears throat> excuse me, social circumstances and, and have a meal with my friend. Uh, just simply because he was done in three minutes and, you know, the rest of us are sitting there still eating our food and conversing. And he was like, you know, it's a time to leave. Can we get out of here? Um, he just thought that food was a waste of time. It was, you know, and, and on one hand, he looked at food as just simply serving a function of providing fuel for his body, but he didn't want to prolong it. In an ideal world, we have that balance. We have a dietary combination, if you will, that is serving the function of fuel and supporting physiology and not promoting problems because it's the other issue. Um, but also we want to enjoy the food. I mean, I love food. I personally love it. I, I love to eat good food. I like to cook. I don't know if I cook well, but I like, I like to cook. Um, and so I do believe that food has to be totally enjoyable. But if you, if it comes down to um, prioritizing flavor and, and fun and enjoyment over function, then we've got something out of whack and out of balance. And yes, there are a lot of people out there that will simply continue to eat the way they always have, not make changes that could potentially translate into some massive shifts in their wellness, just simply because they don't want to give up foods that they love. In fact, I had just one client comes to mind. Um, it was back when I was practicing in and around Tampa. And um, he was Italian, and we had a conversation about gluten sensitivity. We ran some testing and found out that he indeed was gluten sensitive. He didn't have celiac disease. That's a different issue, related but different. And um, we had a talk about going gluten-free, and, and his response to me was like, but doc, I'm Italian. Of course, my thought was, well, Italians aren't the only people who eat bread and pasta, but that whole thing aside is, I don't care what someone's ethnicity is. If the food you're eating is making you sick, you need to stop or enjoy the food as best as you can and, and stay sick because that's just is what's going to continue happening. And so some people can make the transition. It's really amazed me over the years to watch some people go, oh, okay, well, you don't want me to have gluten. I won't have gluten. How long? Three months. Okay, three months. We'll try it. it. Some people just make the transition very easily. It's easy for them to let go of things. And I'm just picking on gluten because it's probably one of the more, probably the most common food that causes health issues, particularly as it relates to promoting inflammation. 
Um, not that there aren't others, there certainly are. Um, but it, it has amazed me over the years to see the dichotomy between people who will cling to their dietary habits and rituals and those who are willing to let it go. Um, and so that's just the reality. And you got to figure out which camp that you're in. And if you are unwilling to consider getting rid of a food or even a group of foods that is promoting your problem, even if you're not sure, even if you're in, in a period of trying to figure stuff out and you're not sure if something is an issue, can you let it go for a sufficient period of time to really get the answer to the question, is this a problem for me? Now, you can always go out there and, and you know, pay money for food sensitivities, and that's what a lot of people want. It's a lot of, it, it is what a lot of doctors and clinicians or healthcare practitioners will do or suggest. But there are some issues related to the technology and the information that we're actually getting when it comes to food sensitivity testing that puts food sensitivity testing into the category of, yeah, this is probably useful information, but it is not telling us everything that we might potentially want to know. And now that I'm saying this and hearing myself speak it, um, I'll either tack an episode in this section or segment on uh, just to go through those things, or we'll just spin it off into a different episode or different segment altogether, because I think it's important to go over some of the limitations uh, as it relates to food and, and sensitivity testing. But anyways, before I get too far off a of bunny trail, uh, let me kind of pull back and let's start with why diet matters. Um, and I'm going to start with just the standard American diet. The acronym is SAD. It's a sad diet. Why is it sad is, is because it tends to promote inflammation and it tends to lack nutrient density. And it is characteristically high in sugar, processed foods, um, wheat, dairy, corn, and soy. And those are uh, certainly the most commonly researched foods in terms of immunological potential, meaning the rate at which uh, North Americans or people in industrialized countries are uh, having some kind of immune reaction to things like wheat, dairy, corn, and soy. Uh, we can also throw eggs in there and, and peanuts as, as being part of the big six. Um, but I, I remember years ago, and I don't know what the statistic is now, but I remember you're reading years ago that uh, for this, the average standard American diet, um, 80% of the calories come from wheat and dairy. And when you consider that those are the number one and number two food sensitivities um, and have in and of themselves the potential to drive inflammatory responses, that basically means the cornerstone of most people's diet is a big contributing factor to the inflammatory conditions and complaints that they have. And so why does diet matter? Number one is because chances are, if you're eating a standard American diet, it's making you sick. And if you're not eating a full-fledged standard American diet, um, then it's some version of being pro-inflammatory, lacking nutrient density, and then being high in things that tend to, uh, in and of themselves, promote inflammatory responses and contribute to things like gut health and food sensitivities. And so diet's a big deal. You know, the other part of this is that when... When you look at an ultimate goal of being able to control your inflammatory load, which then translates into better immunological control, well, let's kind of deconstruct this. Like, why even talk about diet? Diet is a powerful influence over your inflammatory load and immunological control in your immune system and your, your immune competence, quality, balance, resilience, all those things. 
is a significant part of your neuroendocrine immune super system. And, and if you have been following this podcast from the very beginning, we actually started out by talking about the neuroendocrine immune super system and how your brain, your hormones, and your immune system collaborate together to control all aspects and all facets of your physiology. And you can't affect one without the other. And so if diet is a great modulator, either a contributor or a detractor to immune control in your inflammatory state, then I can guarantee you that your diet is uh, having, unless it's optimal, it is having a negative effect on your brain, your hormones, and your entire physiological system. And so diet is a powerful, powerful epigenetic modifier, meaning that what we eat, how we eat, when we eat, why we eat, all of these different elements, all of these different digits, if you will, in the combination of the lock that we've been using metaphorically, um, all of these things have tremendous influence over how our genes express themselves. And to bottom line it, your diet is either helping you or it's hurting you. It's really that simple and there's really not much of an in-between. Uh, and so diet optimization in terms of finding what works for you as an individual, going beyond the general things that most people can benefit from, is absolutely critical, of course, when you are trying to get well and to stay well. And the cool thing is, is that diet is, it's almost completely under your control. And I say almost completely, simply because we're not out there growing our own food, our plants, or our fruits, or vegetables, uh, and we're not raising our own animals. You know, back in the day when there was relatively little in terms of environmental toxicity. The use of things like chemicals and pesticides and insecticides was either almost non-existent or non-existent. And people had chickens in their backyard and a cow or a goat for milk and for meat. And they had a small garden. Um, you know, we go back and we look at health parameters of, of society back then compared to now. And there is no comparison. There, there's absolutely no comparison. And we can look at you know, long range epidemiological studies that look at uh, either causation or correlation between changes in the industrialization of food and the advent of increasing rates of things like diabetes, obesity, cardiovascular disease, neurodegeneration, and, and particularly autoimmune disease. They all kind of tend to track the same parameters. And there was a shift. There was kind of like a watershed era, if you will, where we changed how we grow, process, and distribute our food, we took, you know, kind of like to gave away the power of individuals or small communities in terms of supplying for themselves, and then put it into the hands of, of corporations and, and large entities for economies of scale and, and convenience. But there was a trade-off for all of that stuff. And so, like you know, let me go back to this. Diet is a powerful epigenetic modulator that we have mostly control over, but we don't have complete control because we're not controlling everything that goes into it. And even um, I did a case consult recently for a doctor in Ohio, and it's a woman who's she's very very ill and has been for years. And you know, kind of a typical story for someone in the inflammation nation in the sense that she's seen multiple doctors and maybe has some answers, but really not a lot of progress, but still kind of mystified as to where her issues are coming from. Now, she and her husband live on a farm. They do have crops, but they've been certified organic for, I think he said, probably 15 years or so. However, their neighbors across the street and down the road are not. 
And so one of the things that we discovered in doing our case workup for this woman and for the doctor who's really her primary care, and, and I'm just acting as the case consultant, um, we found that she had a very specific immunotype where the balance of her immune system was totally dysregulated. And the primary driver of that, when you look in the medical literature, is environmental toxicity. Well, we just happened to have gone ahead and ordered uh, some urinary testing to see if she had mold toxins or heavy metals or chemicals. And we don't have that data back yet, but I'm pretty certain that we're going to find that some of the things that are causing her immune dysfunction and dysregulation are probably in the same class of chemicals that people in the community around her are using, even though she and her husband are not. Uh, and that's why I say we have almost complete control, even if you had your own farm, someone 10 miles away can spray their crops with Roundup and the winds can blow that over your way, settle on your crops or into the air that you breathe or come into contact with your skin. And you can have an issue in that sense. So, you know, either your diet's helping or hurting, but we do have great tremendous amount of control and we need to optimize the things that we can, we can. Um, so I'm watching my time here and I'm trying to keep these things short, but gosh, there's just so much to talk about. Let me hit a couple of final points and then we'll save the next topic for, for the next episode. Um, nutrition is not, nor should ever be a religion. And I'm not talking against um, like any of the world religions that have limitations or prohibitions around certain foods like, you know, Jewish people and, and eating pork or always eating kosher or certain things being kosher or maybe Hindus and the reverence for cows. I, you know, I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about not making like in, in that circumstance, let's say it's a Jewish person, person who observes uh, the tenets of Judaism and they, they just don't eat pork because it's part of the old Testament and, and the law, so to speak. Um, I'm not talking about a situation where a religious system imposes some rules around certain foods. I'm talking about when someone makes food and nutrition itself the religion. And, you know, there are some people who have deeply held beliefs about nutrition that they actively preach to others in an effort to convert them. Um, and, you know, to either save them or perhaps even in, you know, these days to save the planet, because there's a big, huge push right now for, the world to turn to a plant-based diet and, you know, from an ethical and ecological as well as a health standpoint. And, and I might agree with some of what they're saying on two of those fronts, but from a nutritional standpoint, I, I absolutely don't. And I question whether or not there's um, enough of a an environmental benefit to going plant-based, the whole world going plant-based actually justified. I think the science actually speaks to the opposite, but nevertheless, I'm not an expert in that area. I have an opinion, but I'm not an expert. And let's put that off to the side for now before I get myself in trouble. Um, but you know, there is, like I said, people hold these deeply held beliefs and it becomes their religion. Nutrition becomes their religion. And sometimes they actually vilify those who don't agree with them, particularly if someone holds a belief that's on the opposite end of the spectrum. And so, and, you know, honestly, we see a lot of this in the vegan, particularly in the raw vegan world, who will accuse people who eat meat, you know, let alone not being like truly a full carnivore, but someone who just eats meat as part of the regular diet and animal products. Um, you know, they they vilify them and, and accuse them of all kinds of terrible things because they're killing animals and, and so on and so on. And and so 
you know, I just don't think that we should turn nutrition into a religion. It's, it's a matter of health and wellness, but that's not to say um, that if someone comes to me and, and wants to consult with me, if some part of their dietary regimen is being dictated by their truly held religious beliefs, not that the food is the religion, but the religion speaks to the issue of food. I'm not going to try to change that. Who am I to speak against someone else's religion, even though I have my own deeply held religious beliefs? So I just don't think that we should, you know, kind of turn it into that thing. So I'd said this before, and I'll end with this on this episode, and we'll pick it up on the next one, is that, you know, part of my sincere belief about nutrition is that there is no one-size-fits-all diet. I do believe that we have enough data and I do believe we have enough experience to say that there is a common quality starting point that's going to work for most people. But it doesn't mean we stop there. It just gives us a good point to jump off, so to speak. Um, but to dovetail off that, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the diet doesn't have to be tailored for them. I think it does. I, I think diets have to be personalized along one or more of several different variables to really optimize it to their own unique individuality. Now, final word, if someone backed me into a corner and said, listen, there's only one piece of nutritional advice that you can ever give anybody from this point forward, what is it? And then they push the microphone towards my mouth. I would probably say something like this, like stop eating highly processed foods um, and stop drinking liquid carbohydrates. I guess that's two, but I'm going to combine them into one. So get rid of the highly processed stuff, meaning like if it's in a box or in a can, if it's got a long list of ingredients, particularly if there are things there that you can't pronounce, you really have no business putting it in your body. And then when it comes to not drinking liquid carbohydrates, the consumption of things like fruit juices and and sodas um, is is just astronomical. And going back to being able to track trends and the change of the consumption of, you know, sugary drinks and sodas and fruit juice and all that stuff and the and the advent of all these modern inflammatory diseases, they're basically parallel curves. So I think the connection there is, um, I think it's undeniable, but again, that's just my opinion. So let's leave it at that. Uh, we'll call that a wrap on the introductory segments or episodes in this segment. And so next time on the next episode, we're going to start talking about what are the digits, the combination. The very first one is quantity. How much do you eat? Let's get that dialed in before we talk about anything else next time on the Inflammation Nation. Thank you so much for listening to the Inflammation Nation. If you found this episode valuable, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. Be the first to know when a new episode drops so that you can stay on top of your game. It also helps others like you find the answers they need. And why not head over to my main website, drnoseworthy.com, that's drnoseworthy.com, to explore my personalized functional medicine coaching programs, submit a question to the podcast, maybe take a quiz, or even reach out to me using the contact form that you can find there. We'll see you next time.